and a very good morning to you. Richard Watts with you here. So today's show, business as usual, before we get into Radiothon mode, we're going to be talking film today uh, because, yes, Melbourne International Film Festival is on, but we're also going to be finding out about the Indian Film Festival and the Israeli Film Festival. It seems to be the week for film festivals starting with I. Uh, we're also going to find out about Anywhere Festival Frankston, uh, which is an offshoot of Anywhere Festival Brisbane now in its second year down in Frankston, presenting performance works in anywhere other than a theatre, a traditional theatre space. Cerise Howard will join us a little bit later on for our Festival of Celluloid segment coming in in her off week. Uh, normally she's in other fortnights, but because Miff is on, she's updating us about a few of the titles that she's seen. On the performance front, we're going to find out about a work called Transcend uh, and another work, uh, an immersive work that's happening in Abbotsford at the convent called Mono. Plus, uh, uh, Fleur Kilpatrick will join us at 10am for our Shoot the Messenger segment. And we're going to find out about a visual art exhibition, Skylab, Lines of Sight and Forces of Attraction at the Cunahan Gallery in Brunswick. So all that and more on the show today. Three, triple, ah. Oh. It's hard to believe that summer is almost upon us. Well, not almost, but uh, when you start hearing about Meredith, you know it's not far away. Something else that is not far away is Transcend, a new work by local writer and performer Jesse Lewis, who joins me in the studio now. Jesse, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Uh, this is the latest in a series of works you've been doing, a triptych of works called Great Southern Land. Yes, that's now, right. Now, when people hear that title, um, all manner of things are going to spring to mind. Absolutely, and, not and, just the Ice House song. <laughs> <laughs> so, what were you when you began this this uh, trilogy of works? What did you want to explore? Um, I wanted to uh, explore what it meant to be Australian in a contemporary setting. So, looking at not just the good parts, but more importantly, the bad parts of it. Um, I first sort of began to uncover and discover what it meant to be a terrorist on home soil, for instance, and shattered. Moving on to environmental circumstance and refugees, uh, turning around the turn back the boat policy in Haven. And this year I'm turning towards, uh, in the past context, uh, the Maralinga testings of nuclear devices in 1950s and 60s Australia. Now, that's an intriguing uh, subject to base a work upon and around, mm. uh, partially because it's it's obviously an echo of the, the era of British colonialism. Yeah, when, when which I don't think we've progressed too far from as a society. Okay. Mm. Um, do you think we're still allowing... I don't know, external forces to take control and dictate what we do here? I think collectively and individually we all are to, to a certain degree. I think that um, it, it, it's, it's a difficult subject, perhaps not so much as intriguing to, to uncover as, a, as an artist. Um, I think it's also something for my generation that not many of us really have a good understanding of and I think it's something that we really need to, need to speak about and open up. There were 1,400 tests over nine years um, and I think over a thousand people died as a result of the nuclear testing there. So it, it's a real dark mark in our history as a as a country. And clearly, as with 
uh, the literal after effects of nuclear testing, which is radiation poisoning mm. that lingers for years. There are psychological and emotional and, and kind of national scars as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. I think we only really uh, reached resolution about two years ago with the um, the court hearings and everything like that and finally handing it back to the traditional landowners a couple of years ago. But, oh, great. Um, yeah, yeah, please have your traditional land back. It's going to be radioactive for the yeah, next 2,000 and, years. Um, I believe I might be incorrect here. They're uh, launching a Royal Commission in South Australia as to whether or not they should open it up for nuclear dumping there again in the next five to ten years. So, okay. yeah. It's a fairly heavy subject matter then to indeed. explore in a work which is weaving together physical performance, mm-hmm. spoken word, um, and uh, str- a really strong sound design as well. Yeah. Um, and projection, which is yes. very much of the moment. Yeah, so what I've done is I've done a lot of research with Ben Eltham, who's a good mate of mine, um, and I'm actually using a lot of the test footage um, the actual, I found it through, uh, just through research, basically, of the actual test sites. So, um, really bringing that sort of historical accuracy to it as well. And tell us, how do you approach a, uh, a piece like this? How do you write about it? Are you, uh, is, are you, have you created a narrative, fictional characters, or are you trying to approach it in a more abstract way? Um, everything about me is a little bit abstract, um, as many people would know. So, I, I started writing this actually in hospital um, about... Uh, eight weeks ago now so um, it was very much from a very isolated point of view from my own perspective and I think that that really reflects in the work it's told in three movements so the first is in 1950s Australia the second is in the present day and the third is in the future tense so it's looking at a dystopian future the present unrest around Tony Abbott and the government at the moment and then obviously as a catalyst the testing in 1950s Uh, in terms of writing something like this Talk to us about uh, how you then kind of workshop it and strengthen it. Uh, have you worked with a director or a dramaturg? Um, pretty much this time round, I've really focused solely on being in my own skin, on my own in the studio. Uh, ben Altham and I have met over many a nights and red wine, sort of writing the work and sort of researching it, but I thought... It's more of a personal reflection as opposed to a narrative or about a certain character. So this one has been very much a solo performance. Um, the last three works have worked with Ben Eltham, Tony Yap, Yvonne Versick and a number of other people around Melbourne um, and taken on their experience and their different backgrounds to actually shape the work. Um, this is just accumulation of what I've learnt, um, what I've been taught and how I've grown personally over the last three years. I was going to say, it clearly it then also then reflects a, a growing confidence in yourself and your own work that you can distill your own influences and ideas, take on board the, the feedback you've received from working with other artists in the past and then strike out on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Over the last three or four years, I've branched out and started to do a number of international tours. At the end of this year, I would have done seven throughout Southeast Asia. So that also the cultural references and the people that I meet on these journeys really inspire and shape my practice. Now, Transcend is being presented at the Scratch Warehouse in North Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that you've referenced uh, is that part of it is going to be lit by candlelight. Yeah, um, 500 candles a night. Um, We used this last year um, in Haven at Croft Institute. Um, So it's really taken the elements from the last two works that were really strong and sort of compiling them into the one performance now um, and it also harks back to the sort of environmental circumstance as well being a little bit more sustainable and not using too much power. 
And there's also then something about the literal heat that uh, will be given off by that many candles as well, that the audience will actually be able to feel the heat rising. Absolutely. And I think that really harks back to the thing that I didn't want to be didactic about this work. I really wanted to bring individuals uh, from different collectives and different parts of society together to actually, upon reflection and solidarity of what has happened and what is to happen in this country. I'm getting the feeling you don't have a, fair, an, a particularly optimistic view of what the future of Australia may be. Under this government, no, I don't. And I think that I speak for a lot of people in that regard. Um, we only have to look at the, the climate change debate that's actually sparked up in the last couple of days as an example, uh, his stance on gay marriage and the rest of it. At the moment, we're in a country that is facing a lot of problems, both social, political, economic, um, and we really need to band together and actually try and work out how we can move forward as a collective, repair some of the damage done and, and really, really repair the damage and just say sorry for a lot of the things that we have. That notion of repairing the damage is clearly something that is at the heart of Transcend in some ways, given, again, the referencing, as we've said earlier, to nuclear testing on Australian soil mm. by Great Britain, mm. that notion of coming to grips with the past uh, in order to, to kind of move forward into the, to, a, to a hope. Oh, God, I use that phrase, move forward. I hate that in office speak, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, you only have to look at uh, some of the interviews with Yami Lester, who was one of the elders in that area, to actually understand the devastation and, and, and just what happened to those communities over there. They were left, they were left on, this, on the land without any warning of the tests were actually going to happen, you know, and that's this sort of thing still happens and continues to happen in society. Transcend uh, by Jesse Lewis is on from the 13th to the 15th yes. of August. Tickets are available for Friday, Saturday night. We've sold out completely tonight. Oh, fantastic. Thank right. you. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So uh, the world premiere tonight at Scratch Warehouse in, uh, which is at 271 to 273 Macaulay Road, North Melbourne. For people who don't know the area, what's the nearest landmark? Uh, Macaulay the train Road train station? station. It's about two minutes walk. You walk out of the station and it's left should be much easier to find then. Uh, and you can book uh, uh, at trybooking.com forward slash HZNX uh, or possibly if you don't have time to write that down, just Google uh, uh, Try Booking and the word Transcend, yep. which is the name of Jesse Lewis's new production. Tickets only available for Friday and Saturday, Saturday nights. So yes. hopefully they sell quickly as well. Jesse, thanks for joining Fantastic. us. Fantastic. Thank you, Richard. Triple R, not for everyone for anyone. My next guest has joined me in the studio. Matthew Aidy is a director and designer and many in the uh, performing arts industry will know him because of uh, his production company House of Veen Unholy. 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 Cool. Good. Uh, why do you put a V in it just to confuse me? <laughs> that is a funny question. Um, I uh, was registering it for a website, a .com. And um, I couldn't get House of Unholy.com, so I changed it to a V. Okay. And the graphic designer who I was working with at the time thought it was appropriate to use the V, uh, you know, sort of like a, a beam of light or something, because light is a vital part of my design okay. work. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, now I know. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Matt, you're doing a new work called Mono at the Sacred Heart Oratory down at Abbotsford Convent. It's a performance installation, so quite a, an immersive, rich work. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so um, 
I've been working on this one for about three years um, conceptually, um, and then I started developing it two years ago um, through a VCA graduate mentorship, um, which I was getting mentored with um, by Philip Adams from Ballet Lab. Uh, then we ended up taking it t for a uh, premier season to Adelaide Fringe last year. Um, and it was basically built around the venue that we got given or that I sourced in Adelaide, which was a very vast and large uh, abandoned warehouse um, through Renewal SA. So it had like these numerous mezzanine floors, glass window rooms. Um, so we built that in there and then the audience sort of went on a promenade and then it turned into a formal performance down on the floor. Um, now we've sort of scaled it back for the convent to fit into the Sacred Heart Oratory, so now it's more of a formal affair and just sort of a uh, voyeuristic kind of look into the world of uh, my my brain and imagination, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so I like the idea of being able to wander around inside your brain. That should be a mm. fairly intriguing uh, uh, kind of basis for a performance. It's weird. I would expect <laughs> nothing else. Um, so it, uh, beyond just exploring your brain, though, what did you want to explore? I know one of the elements that you're, you're looking at is... I guess the notion of how shallow contemporary society can be in terms of the the things that distract us uh, from perhaps what's more important. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I took inspiration from Edgar Allan Poe's story called Berenice, which is um, based on a, a man who was uh, obsessed with like a singular object, um, and at that time it was called monomania. So that's hence the title. Uh, mono hyphen, then we go into exploring things of, you know, monogamy and, um, you know, singular sort of characters on stage not really quite interacting, kind of passing through each other. Um, and then sort of taking that descent, descent into madness um, with, you know, use of objects and light and sound. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a, like a, a bed of drone that sort of just... Um, takes over the space most of the time um, sort of t puts you in this sort of we call it the mono mantra it sort of uh, transcends you down the descent and the steep dark path of Edgar Allan Poe really um, but yeah we sort of explore you know obsession with sort of inanimate objects moving objects that sort of appear and reappear and um, yeah sort of drawing on imaginations and um, letting the audience sort of take it all in and sort of not have to unpack it as we go and sort of take it away with them and then sort of let the images s stick with them for a little while. This notion of allowing them to unpack it for themselves, so rather than constructing a, a, a traditional narrative in which you're telling the audience what's happening, you're presenting them with words, with images, with sounds and allowing them to create their own path through and around that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, it's a type of performance that I enjoy to um, experience myself, so... Um, it's sort of using you know repetition of words um, to create a text to create more of a texture in the air than um, sort of deliver a message or um, using um, light to manipulate an image and set the image up and then we sort of destroy it and then we build another new image and then we destroy it and we sort of go along that way um, until you know the <laughs> all the props and set and all that is just completely. <laughs> 
at a loss. <laughs> How many collaborators have you pulled on board to, to create this? Because it sounds like a fairly labour-intensive uh, work to create. Yeah, well, I've kept it quite minimal, as as the set is as well. Um, that's a kind of, uh, I guess, a thing of Houseman Holly kind of does. We, we I like to um, kind of strip it right back to its essential parts. Um, well, there's three, three main performers, um, and then we've got a sound designer, um, Robert Jordan. We've got a proje- projection designer, um, Andre Vanderwert. So it's all, it's, it's all lit with projectors, um, using that sort of light source at, at, to be able to move the light around. And, um, and then the three performers, John, Shosh and Leela and myself. And uh, there's a bit of a catwalk going on. A bit of a catwalk, yeah. It's sort of, um, I kind of appropriate appropriate to the site specifics of where we're at. So um, it was a square box at the warehouse in Adelaide. Now it's a sixteen metre long stage. It sort of looks a bit like a catwalk. So that performance sort of runs up and down in a long length, which again is a nice reflection on I know some of the the abstractions uh, and and obsessions in our society. The the notion of beauty and fashion parades and so forth. Yeah, being able to acknowledge that and reflect that as well. Yeah. I haven't even thought about it like that, but that's thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> See, that, that's my job as a critic to go. Yeah. what's he really saying? Yeah, you know there is. Yeah, it's definitely sort of um, subconsciously a lot of those images tap into you know sort of I guess you know political agendas of of my own, and um, I'm not so uh, uh, overt with putting them right up the front. I sort of try and sort of hide them in and layer them underneath and um, if the audience wants to pick them out then that's that's totally up to them I'm curious to know what's made you want to create this work given that you're particularly in the Melbourne independent theatre sector for example you're primarily known as a designer um, and whether that's working with MKA whether that's working with Red Stitch or um, uh, a range of other companies dancers uh, theatre companies Mm. etc why the transition from working quietly as a designer in the background to foregrounding your work uh, uh, with this particular work, Mono? I think it comes with the whole reason why I am designing for theatre and performing arts in general. Um, it was basically, you know, uh, 10 years ago I came across a uh, DVD a documentary about um, a theatre artist called Robert Wilson. Called, uh, the documentary is called Absolute Wilson. Um, I was at a point in my life where I really needed to turn some things around. I wasn't quite happy where I was at. Um, and this documentary um, kind of pointed out to me that, you know, there are some amazing things you can do with live performance and in the theatre, in a little box, in a black black room. Um, so, you know, it took me a little while to transition into that, um, into, you know, <laughs> becoming a designer. I was always a furniture maker before that. So I guess I carry that through with me. Um, you know, then I went... I, I uh, attended VCA for three years as an undergraduate designer. And then I think I just, it's my sort of trajectory path to sort of move into performance making and, and to create a performance that um, I really would like to make. Yeah. Um, and to what degree has the your mentorship with Philip Adams from Ballet Lab been, how has that influenced you and, and uh, helped refine your aesthetic or your ideas? Um, I mean, because for people who are familiar with uh, Philip's work, design has always played a really key element in yeah. so many of his productions. Yeah. Well, um, 
like I met Philip uh, when he was creating Avery. I did a, I designed a uh, projected disco floor for him, um, and then we sort of always kept in contact. And he's on this project. He's kind of been sort of in the in the background as a more of a, I guess, like a provocateur, sort of, you know, going, nah. you know, just providing questions. Should you do that? Is this the way you should be doing it? And it's kind of great to sort of, then I can kind of take that and, um, you know, rethink about what we think what I'm doing and, you know, keep working and building and, you know, trimming the fat. <laughs> Mono <laughs> is on from tonight uh, until Sunday. Yes. Uh, at the Abbotsford Convent in the Sacred Heart Oratory. Uh, it's uh, the House of Unholy's debut performance installation, directed and designed by my guest, Matthew Aidy. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be a kind of a rich and intriguing work indeed, so I hope people get the chance to see it. It is for a limited audience of 60 people at a time only, so uh, I reckon uh, people may want to book as quickly as possible so that they can get in to see it. Uh, uh, we do need to warn that it contains nudity, smoke effects, strobe effects, and simulated death scenes. So it's kind of got everything, really. It does. <laughs> uh, and, uh, Matt, if people want to book, how do they do that? Uh, just through trybooking.com. Um, you'll find, or you'll find the links on the House of Unholy um, Facebook page or on the convent website. So do book and get along. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Three, triple, ah. My next guest joins me in the studio. He's been a guest uh, on this show a few times over the years with various different hats on. Richard Moore uh, is uh, has been programming a range of film festivals around the country and guest film programmer at the Melbourne International, uh, sorry, at Melbourne Festival and various other things. I've been around, haven't You've I? Been a busy man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, joining us today to talk to us about the uh, the Israeli Film Festival, the AICE Israeli Film Festival, uh, that now in its twelfth year. I believe. Now in its 12th year, under a new directorship, that's me. And, uh, you know, a totally new approach to it, really. I've divided the program into five different sections just because I thought I could this time. You uh, like programming streams like that, I've noticed, amongst I your do. festivals. I do, it's true. I mean, it gives you a something concrete to hang things on. And, get, you know, for a, for a programmer, you need some sort of central burning core to drive the thing. And I mean, not everything always fits into programming streams, but this these programs streams are quite good. There's one on questions of faith, which there could be no more sort of important issue in the in the Middle East and maybe elsewhere, questions of faith. That's a totally new section. There's a, a queer spot because uh, that hasn't happened in the Israeli Film Festival before. There's a very vibrant queer culture in Tel Aviv in particular yeah. uh, and some very relevant pieces particularly in the queer shorts program there, including one called Gavolt, which is sort of like a Yiddish expression for oh my god, but it's the um, it, it's the sort of revolt by the uh, Jerusalem queer community about the the stabbings that happened. Um, well, there was a stabbing last week of the Gay Pride March in Jerusalem, but the protests that are conducted by the ultra-Orthodox community against the queer community in Israel. So that's a really important film. There's a whole section on blasts from the past, which are some of the terrific uh, older films from Israel, and I would highly recommend to anyone, if I haven't seen it, and you you probably wouldn't have seen it, a film called Avanti Popolo, 
which is the name of the Italian communist album, which sounds like a sort of a funny thing for an Israeli uh, film. But Avanti Popolo is set during the Six-Day War, and it was a revolution uh, in Israeli filmmaking in the sense that it starred two Arab characters in the central role, and they were actually two Arab actors as well. And it's really a sort of the surreality, the bizarreness, the theatricality of war in a very sort of Samuel Beckett sense. Um, you'll see it if you see the film. You'll get that sort of, you'll get that connection. But that's like 1984. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of very contemporary films, obviously. It's so sort of the contemporary reflection of Israel as a very vibrant democracy, very critical of itself, but also looking backwards at those wonderful films from the past. Now, one of the things that intrigues me about kind of creating these kind of program streams is obviously, as you've said, as a programmer, it gives you hooks to, to hang films on and structure yeah. a program. But it also then gives audiences, some of whom may yeah. not have attended the festival before, they can choose a particular pathway yeah. with which they can then navigate into the festival. And then once have seen one or two films within that perhaps then branch out and look at some of the other works. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think as I've got older and greyer and wiser uh, in my programming days, I've realised that as much as it's important to to get the right films or get an interesting mix of films, I think the education to the audience and the explanation to an audience is perhaps even more vital. Uh, you know, you look at a program, everyone's time poor, etc., besieged by social media and all those things. So what am I going to go and see? Uh, well... Okay, here's an easy way for you to enter. So there's, you know, four or five different windows you can go through uh, in this in this festival to, to, you know, to find something that you might like. Now, uh, obviously, the, uh, the the queer programming stream is something that's going to be dear to my heart personally. I uh, thought it might. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but it also reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, a queer Israeli filmmaker for, uh, a few years ago, Eitan Fox, talking oh, yeah. about one of his films. He spoke about his concerns about Israel using his films and those of his colleagues uh, as pinkwashing, uh, as a way of saying, on yeah. the one hand, look, we're a socially progressive country. Look how supportive we are of our queer filmmakers uh, in order to... Well, he's right about that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in order to perhaps kind of avert attention away from some of the other tensions uh, between yeah. Israel and its neighbours. Talk to us about how those tensions are being explored in your programming. Well, it's interesting because the whole of the, the festival is done under the auspices of an organisation called AICE, which is Australian-Israel Cultural Exchange. And, you, and I've been given a very free hand in the programming. And you might think that something that has a name like that might end up being a sort of like a tourist brochure sort of view of Israel or a sort of an official view of Israel. But it's, but it's not. It is uh, a view of Israel that, as I said before, you know, as a vibrant democracy, but full of flaws, full of cracks, full of opposition to current policies in uh, Israel, whether they're uh, to do with the treatment of gays. And you'll see in those films in the Shorts program that they're, they're pretty um, stringent in their opposition to state and religious orthodoxies. Um, but also, you know, for example, in the section called uh, On the edge, which to do with issues that really are on the edge of mainstream Israel. There are some very, very um, powerful documentaries dealing with the immigrant problem, the migrant problem in Israel. One called The Last 
stop, which is set around the central bus station uh, in Tel Aviv, which has become the epicenter of the Eritrean and Sudanese uh, communities. And these are uh, refugees who've come in via human trafficking, via Egypt, via different areas, and they land in Israel around this one area in southern Tel Aviv, and the community doesn't know how to deal with them. So they're in a situation where they're basically they don't have any legal rights, uh, and the local communities, I can tell you, uh, in this film are very, um, let's say, open about expressing their opposition to having these people around, uh, almost to the point where you think, wow, that's pretty racist racist views being expressed there. So, look, to summarise all of that, um, you know, I don't think at all the program is an attempt to either pinkwash, whitewash, um, blue and whitewash uh, the state <laughs> the state of Israel. In fact, you know, with some of the programs, with some of the films I put in, I thought, oh, are they going to like this? I don't know. But, you know, in, the, that's, the that's community your here... To, so, to, in some right. ways, to challenge, it's, provoke, yeah. to, to reflect. Oh, but yeah. if we're reflecting a culture, uh, it has to reflect a culture, um, all aspects of the culture. We don't always like what we see in the mirror. Exactly. exactly. And I I always thought the role of a program was, you know, uh, there are a few things, a few constants. One is to entertain, obviously. Uh, another is to disturb. Uh, another is to provoke. And perhaps education comes in there as well. But they're always sort of underlying all the things that at least myself as a programmer are, are trying to do. In terms of the, the state of health of uh, filmmaking in Israel, how strong is the, the is Israeli film culture, the, the native uh, kind of the local film industry there? Well, look, uh, there's a strong focus in docu of documentaries in this in this program. Um, and I mentioned that because uh, in regards to the health, because when I was there in uh, Doc Aviv in May, which is Israel's premier documentary festival held right in the centre of Tel Aviv, talking to some of the filmmakers, there are five funds that they can apply to to make their uh, to make their documentaries so and television gets involved a lot possibly more here there should be more television documentaries being funded being funded here um, so that's that's a very uh, healthy aspect of the Israeli film industry they have more people will go and see Israeli films than, you know, per capita, per head of population, than the unfortunate figures we hear about Australian films. So they do support their films. Come on, Australians, get out there and support The Last Cab to Darwin. Um, and uh, it's... Look, filmmakers have got their... Filmmakers have got their struggles there, like, you know, like, like everyone. But it is very vibrant, very active again. And, uh, you know, they're very creative and imaginative people. Let's talk about a couple of the, the programming streams in a bit more detail, mm. uh, such as Questions of Faith, which, yeah. as you say, is uh, um, looking at faith and interfaith relations. Yeah, look, I think the most important you know, issue in Israel is perhaps that interfaith issue in one of the documentaries, and we have one of the guests who just landed actually today uh, coming, Barack Hyman, who's the producer of a film called Almost Friends. And it's, in, in, a, in a way, an educational uh, documentary, but it's not. It's more entertaining than that sounds and it concerns uh, the meeting or the dialogue between two groups of girls who are both like 12, 13 years old. One group of the girls comes from the city of Lod, which is uh, composed of Arab, it's a group of girls, Arab, Christian and Jewish, and they go to meet a group of girls, same age, from a religious settlement, uh, a place called Talilim. And it's <laughs> the 
it's the process of uh, getting the girls together, having that dialogue. And, of course, there's no problem between the Arab girls and the uh, Jewish girls are having the dialogue. But when it comes to the, the parents and their siblings, of course, the possibility of continuing that dialogue is very, very, uh, you know, is very, very difficult, as you'll see if you get to see the film. Um, so, you know, it's an optimistic attempt to bring people together, to bring faiths together, but dashed by the reality of the very difficult and very sort of fractious situation that people find themselves in in that country. A partner with the enemy exploring some similar themes there as well, except yeah. for uh, the, an adult perspective of a relationship between an Israeli woman and a Palestinian woman. Yes, that's right. No, it's, it's very another one. You know, another one like that, trying to cross the divide, but using a, a business where a Palestinian woman who's very smart on uh, the sh- well, the shipping of. Palestinian goods coming into the country and the Israeli woman on the other side who can come in and cut through all the red tape and all the bureaucracy and get stuff out of the ports because all the goods that come into Palestine are necessarily held up for weeks, months sometimes and and it needs that collaboration to get the goods out so that the businesses can continue. But it starts well. But it's difficult. (laughs) Uh, If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Richard Moore, who is the festival director of the AICE Israeli Film Festival, which is running from the 18th to the 30th of August at Palace Cinema Como and Palace Brighton Bay. One of the opportunities that a film festival gives us is the opportunity to socialise, to see films, to sit in the dark in a room full of strangers and be part of that shared experience, and sometimes to revisit great films that you may not have had a chance to see on the big screen before. I'm thinking particularly of the opportunity to see uh, Waltz with Bashir on the big screen again, for which for many people may be the first time they've ever seen it on the big screen. Uh, why program this particular kind of delicious piece of animation? <laughs> well, I thought I, I wanted in that section, Blast from the Past, to have a film from different uh, decades. And, I mean, there are numbers of, you know, powerful films that have come out of Israel uh, in the last decade, including things like Bands Visit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, whilst with Bashir, uh, I remember meeting the striking uh, and very beautiful Ari Folman uh, years ago in Cannes when he, when he launched the film. And I think, uh, you know, not only is it exciting from um, an artistic point of view, because it's all made out of flash flash animation but it's also very very political uh, i don't know if you remember the the end the last footage of it from well should i spoil it no i no, no I, I shouldn't spoil it but it's a it's a very political very personal journey into his experiences of of war as one of the soldiers fighting in one of the wars that seemed to beset the middle east um, yeah, it's a very creative piece. It is. There's, uh, look, just finally, let's talk about your opening night film as well, um, which uh, it's all kind of like choosing the right film to open a festival yeah. is, is fraught <laughs> with challenges. Yes, I gather Miff was a, you know, a bit of a downer this year. <laughs> I, I sadly did not get along to the. I think it's the first opening night of Miff I've, I've missed in about 15 Richard, years. what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm getting old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your opening night. <laughs> the opening night is uh, called Mutti Kaspi Confession. And Mutti Kaspi is for those who are Israelis or not, you know, those who grew up in the diaspora as well, was a sort of a superstar, a rock star of Israeli music. I can't play, I can't harm or sing any of his tunes, so please don't ask me. But he's also, um, it, it's a, I wanted something that would be quintessentially uh, Israeli, uh, but also 
entertaining and uplifting. I mean, he's a sort of a, a tragic character. It's the classic sort of rise and fall. He rose to fame. He suffered a tremendous sort of split with the Israeli public. He was exiled to the United States. He dabbled with the Jehovah's Witnesses and then he came back and he's been re-embraced into Israeli society. Uh, I just found out last uh, last night, actually, he's been nominated for um, out of 100 uh, Israeli documentaries nominated as one of the f- top five for the Israeli Academy Awards, so very lucky. Um, but it's but it's as a film and as an experience, it's entertainment, um, and I do believe, I'll try, <laughs> you know, that you need to set the tone of the festival on your opening night if you can, uh, and this was a way of setting something that was celebratory and entertaining and light, but also quintessentially about the country. The AICE Israeli Film Festival running from the 18th to the 30th of August at Palace Cinema Covo and Palace Brighton Bay. More info at the festival website, AICE Israeli Film Festival.com. Fairly easy to find. We've been chatting to the festival director, Richard Moore. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Richard. Thank you. Three Triple R. Someone who has a hunger for good theatre joins me in the studio now. Fleur Kilpatrick uh, presents our Shoot the Messenger segment fortnightly on the show, looking at what's on stages and what's coming up. And a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. Hi. Now, um, I confess that the last couple of weeks I haven't really seen anything. I've been hibernating a little bit and MIF has also been on. That is so justifiable and so totally okay. And my apology is also that I had a show on and so I mostly just saw my own show. Um, I think is a pretty good excuse. Yeah, yeah. So today we're going to be talking a bit more previewing yeah. what's coming up, um, and which is a really good day to do it on as both Melbourne Fringe and Melbourne Festival has, have launched their programs. So it's a great time to look at to look at that and look at what's coming for the um, for the next few months. Yeah, the September October period is always a little crazy in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and yes, Melbourne Fringe launched their program on Tuesday night with, uh, amongst other things, as you would expect, uh, a fair bit of criticism for the. Federal Arts Minister and his National Programme for Excellence. And yes, uh, Melbourne Festival launched their program last week and we had Josephine Ridge, the Festival Director, on the show last week chatting about it in detail. Um, so I guess where where do you begin? With, I mean, because if I find the navigating these festivals daunting, which makes me think that for people who don't know the industry, uh, it's I know it's even more daunting. I have friends every year at Fringe who pick up the program and go, yeah. it's just too big, I don't know what to see, and they put it down and walk away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think Fringe, there's a few really good ways to make things easier to you if you're a first-time Fringe goer, and that is to know which of the venues are curated. So the thing with Fringe is that it's a all-access festival, anyone can put in stuff, which means you get the wonderful, incredible creativity of artists that haven't been told to make a particular thing. It can also mean that you have some shows that work less well than others. It's a creative lucky dip. It is, it is. It's, for me, one of the things that I delight in with Fringe is taking that risk of going, I know nothing about these artists, they may never have made work before. It could be brilliant, um, or I could remember it for possibly the wrong reasons, but either way, you're going on a creative journey, and that's so Mm. exciting. So I would look at, if I were 
if I were a bit anxious about, if I wanted to up my chances in this artistic lucky dip, I would be looking around the Fringe Hub and also Darabin Speakeasy out in North, uh, North Melbourne Town Hall because their programming in the last couple of years has just been exceptional. And I think you're sure certain to find some really exciting things there. So definitely, yeah, Northcote Town Hall and also the... Um, uh, the Darabin Performing Arts Centre, which they're programming yeah. more as well. Yeah, wonderful. That said, some amazing things, sometimes the most amazing and exciting, buzzy performances of a fringe can crop up in these little venues by themselves, which so, is really special. Um, and some of those venues in the past have included basements, shop fronts, on the street. Car uh, parks. Car parks, inside a car and sitting in the back seat of a car. Yeah. So you have to sort of keep your ear to the ground. But a good way to start, if you're not sure, if you're looking through the Fringe Guide, is to check out those venues that you know are curated, that you know are being managed in that way, and then listen out for what else is being really exciting. So a few that I've sort of pulled out of the program that I'm already really excited about. There's one called HOM, uh, that's H-O-M-M-E at Darabin Speakeasy. That's, um, their write-up in it actually isn't the strongest, but the two artists involved are so good that I'm just like, oh, okay, maybe you aren't that great at writing your blurbs. I don't care because these two artists are so incredible. One is Natalie Abbott, whose work Maximum um, was taken over to the uh, to Avalon um, Dance Festival, Arts Festival uh, recently. Is sort of basically the only Australian show over there. She's an amazing young artist. And then she's te- uh, paired up with Matt Aidy. Who was on the show uh, only half an hour ago. Oh, was he? Well, yes. he is um, an amazing artist. And I think that there's something really interesting with directors that start off as designers, as Matt d- did, as Emma Valente did as well. They just see the world in a really visual and unique way. And they are thinking so much about what we receive through placement, through through space, through use of space. So I think that one's going to be really interesting and it's an interrogation of masculinity and contemporary culture and it sounds like there's going to be a lot of s- silence as well. I think it's a very, going to be a very quiet examination. But um, Now, one of my recommendations is to check out a festival within the festival and that's mm. the Frisk Festival at the VCA, which is the second year that VCA students have had the opportunity to present a body of work. Um, so that's all happening in uh, in Dodd Street at 28 Dodd Street. Mm. Uh, and so I think there's about seven, uh, six or seven works being presented as Frisk. So if you want to see what the current crop of VCA students are making, Always. that's an opportunity to, to check out kind of, yeah, a, a festival within a festival. Yeah. There's two pieces. We mentioned those sort of journey pieces where you're taken somewhere as well. And there's two pieces so far that I've noticed that I think will be really interesting. One's called Suburbia, which leaves from the North Melbourne Town Hall um, and travels through the northern suburbs in a in a little Honda Jazz, I believe, um, as sort of performance happens around you out the windows of the car. And so you're sort of, you're part of this adventure and witnessing an ins- installation as you go. I think that sounds beautiful. And the other is Step, S-T-E-P-P-E, which begins at the Newport power uh, a substation um, and that is based on the stories and letters from the playwright's Polish grandmother and it's about fleeing one's country as far as I can gather about you know the, someone having to gather their belongings in half an hour in a suitcase and flee so you are there 
fleeing with her in the middle of the night, which I think sounds amazing. They have warned us to bring warm clothes. So be aware that a fair bit of that one's going to be outside and going to be quite high energy and yeah. Uh, there's also a circus work that I uh, am very intrigued by called Bodies Over Bitumen, which again is... Um uh, says, please wear clothing suitable for outside. Meet on the steps of the uh, the of Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall, and go off on a journey. Um, and uh, Sky Gelman, who's a, a, a circus artist who deconstructs circus in a beautiful and fascinating, sometimes quite challenging way, mm-hmm. is involved in bodies over bitumen. So that will be quite intriguing. And we've mentioned that notion of curated venues, gasworks in Albert Park curate a strong circus program for the Fringe every year. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on as well. Yeah. There's another dance piece that I'm quite interested by, which feels like it is a bit of a potluck one for me because I kind of go like, oh, that could be incredible or not because it's a dangerous premise. And what it is is it's of mice and men. So it's a dance piece based on that novel. It's happening at the Fringe Hub, so it has gone into that curated program. Um, And dance is sort of the antithesis of the novel in a lot of ways, I think. So I think it's a really interesting thing for dancers to re-examine this because suddenly what dance is so good at is taking us into this emotional landscape of the world and and interrogating relationships in terms of space and imagery and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what they do, which then perhaps leads me on to Melbourne Festival Program. Just if, before we yeah. jump into the Melbourne Festival, a reminder, Melbourne Fringe, the program launched this week, running from the 16th of September to the 4th of October. Uh, keep an eye on the Twitter hashtag MelbFringe as to, to find out the goss once the festival starts uh, and check out the website melbournefringe.com.au. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, so Melbourne festival itself so there's a piece in there that i'm very interested in because it's also an adaptation of a novel i am pretty excited about seeing a stage adaptation of 1984 that's a uk um production smash hit over in the uk um adapted by robert ike and duncan mcmillan um it's been had just incredible reviews and i think that it's a really interesting thing to try and even attempt to put a novel like that on stage i saw a very quite not completely unsuccessful adaptation mm-hmm. of 1984 at melbourne festival maybe gosh maybe almost eight years ago or more ten years ago but one of the reasons it was unsuccessful was because it was on the the stage of the State Theatre, which is a huge cavernous venue, and it was this dark, claustrophobic show that just did not suit the venue. Whereas, And this production of 1984 that's coming out this year, I know uh, video plays a really strong part, Mm. uh, and it seems in a a much more suitable space. I think it's in the... Uh, I haven't read uh, the playhouse. Down. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm very excited about that. Something I'm really, the first one really to catch my eye when I flicked through was Desdemona, which is directed by Peter Sellers, who's a really legendary theatre director. Um, the text is by um, an incredibly well recognised poet, Tony Morrison. Um, and it's been described as a theatrical seance. So Barbary, the maid who raised Desdemona on African stories and songs, it's sort of, it's focusing on that moment before Othello comes along at all and just on the women of this story. And and in a play, a play that Othello is, where the woman is either the totally the victim or sometimes looked upon as the, the there was a very recent production in Adelaide uh, where 
where she was described as as being too slutty and sort of bringing it on herself by some reviewers as well. So women in this play have always been a really interesting and an interesting tension to sit within this play. So I think that that's a really beautiful thing to explore as theatre makers is the role of women and the role of the African stories within within this concept, within this play that is such an English telling, yeah. <laughs> such an English imagining of Africa to take that out and examine that, I think will be just beautiful. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, one of the Australian works, Sydney Chamber Opera. I keep hearing great things about um, uh, a company, uh, as their name suggests, in Sydney doing small-scale opera works and supporting new work. Mm. Uh, and they've got a production, Fly Away Peter, which is based on a David Maloof novel mm. uh, and got rave reviews in Sydney a few months ago. Um, it's uh, Again, it's uh, one of many works that we've seen recently referencing World War One, but uh, it just seems incredibly powerful. Um, and if nothing else, I'm intrigued to see it because I know that the performers ended up covered in mud and earth and dirt by the end of the show. Kind of... I want every opera to end. <laughs> that sounds great. But no, it's had really, really strong reviews. And um, uh, another new work, the world premiere of The Bacchae. Uh, yes, that was Martin's on my list too. And Fraught Outfit. Now, this is a continuation of St Martin's uh, Youth Arts Centre creating work made by young people for adult audiences um, and uh, kind of conceived and directed by Adina Jacobs, who is just a superb director. Yeah. So some of you may have seen um, On the Bodily Education of Young Girls at Neon a couple of years ago, and this is very much sort of being seen as a continuation of that exploration, uh, continuing Adina's exploration of lost innocence and primal fury within young women, which I think is just such a beautiful and intriguing and dangerous thing to look at with a cast of teenagers. Now, there's a lot of other works in the Melbourne Festival that I've got my eye on. There's at least one I've already seen, mm -hmm. uh, which I was, I have to confess, sadly, I was underwhelmed by, which is The Rabbits, uh, oh, yeah. the new work from Barking Gecko and Opera Australia. I absolutely applaud the idea of creating uh, new Australian opera and uh, opera for children. But in for me, this production didn't work. I found the libretto a little stilted. Uh, I f And uh, musically, it didn't particularly engage me either. But that said, it also got a glowing five-star review in The Guardian. So, uh, yep. swings so and roundabouts. Totally worked for someone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a really exciting couple of months coming up for theatre as well. I, um, it's beautiful to see such a jam-packed program for Fringe in particular. So don't don't let it terrify you. Do let it inspire you and inspire you to take risks and to be brave and to wander into rooms you haven't been in before and into... It's it, There's also a beautiful opportunity to see things of such intimacy in the Fringe, to find the works where there's only going to be five audience members and that are made for five audiences and five audience members. That's so special and people can get very, very scared of that concept. But that's about intimacy of storytelling and intimacy of image making and meaning making. And that's something really exciting to look out for and treasure. Uh, and it's also an opportunity to see uh, independent work from uh, other cities that we don't always get much of a chance to see in Melbourne either. Uh, and I know there's a great work coming over from Perth called Fag Stag, um, yeah. which I had the 
opportunity to see in Perth at the start of the year and I adored it yeah. and really looking forward to seeing it again. So yeah, I did see that one had just nothing but amazing reviews as well. So, so that's, that's a, a Perth company, The Last Great Hunt, who are kind of like the, the Perth indie superstar yeah. kind of... Uh, kind of um, group, so uh, keep an eye out for them. Look, we've run out of time, but uh, Flo, we'll catch you again in a fortnight's time, uh, mm-hmm. by which stage I'm sure both you and I will have had a chance to catch we'll up on a few shows. We'll have seen a whole lot of theatre eventually. Yeah. yeah, no, really excited. There's some beautiful stuff coming up in this fortnight. Catch you soon. Thanks. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Now, um, Skylab, Lines of Sight and Forces of Attraction is an exhibition that is currently showing at the Cunahan Gallery uh, in Brunswick. It's curated by Felicity Spear, who joins me in the studio now. Felicity, good morning. Good morning. And you've brought a couple of artists with you as well. We have Daniel Armstrong and Harry Nankin. Welcome to you both as well. Good morning, Good morning. So I might get you, Felicity, to introduce this exhibition to us. Uh, the the uh, the title alone is an intriguing one, but um, uh, if I think Skylab, I think back to my childhood in the in in the seventies and sitting on the roof of a barn, hoping that a piece of space junk <laughs> might fall upon me. But uh, tell us about uh, what this particular Skylab well, is all about. Well, that's all part of it, Richard. Um, I'm interested in how we uh, understand the cosmic signs in our everyday world. And I've drawn these artists together because I think they are as well. And you're not far off the mark. My interest um, started as a child when my father pointed out all those stars to me. We lived in the country and um, I remember standing on somebody's garage roof and watching the first satellite go across. And now I watch occasionally the International Space Station carve its way across the sky and um, yes I was in India you know on the hippie trail when the the man um, you know the first man walked on the moon and um, all those things are what I would describe as cosmic signs as well as you know weather and um, all the extension of technology that humans are now pushing art into space um, and that relationship between the earth and the sky. Um, People don't really understand that our world is just a tiny speck of dust circulating around in a most enormous universe. And so the artists in Skylab, um, one way or another, mostly work with light because light is our medium of contact with with the universe. Um, In one way or another, they manipulate light through their work. And um, we, we, we know, or maybe some of you don't know, but um, the electromagnetic spectrum, which is um, a whole series of different degrees of radiation and visible light is one of those. But if you go into X-ray and ultraviolet, you are enabling yourself to see beyond what we can actually see in visible light. And that is of great interest to, to many. And that has opened up our world you know, enormously to see, to extend it beyond just our feet. Now, it is also the International Year of Light, and we've been seeing a lot of light-based works in galleries and on streets and projections and so forth. But um, I'm going to challenge uh, both uh, Daniel and Harry. Uh, I'm going to get you to talk about each other's work for a moment <laughs> rather than your own. Are you, fam- have you, are you familiar enough with one another's work within the exhibition uh, that we're talking about to give the, the listeners a, a sense of what one another 
is doing. Yeah, I think this is a, an interesting opportunity, <laughs> so we'll take it. <laughs> Harry's work uh, is incredibly um, considered. Harry's gone into um, not only dealing with uh, representation of the cosmos, but he's used the cosmos to illuminate his work. He's placed photographic plates under a dark sky at Lake Tyrrell, which was right. uh, presumably, or we, we understand, was once uh, an observatory used by Indigenous mm. populations when the water level was low in the lake, they could see the sky in the lake and read the sky. So Harry's gone to this beautiful location, which already has an ancient history. He's taken archive photographic plates from Mount Palomar and Siding Springs, I think it was. From the observatories there. Laid them down on the ground. This is a quick summary. Laid them down on the ground and let the night sky, the sky, the light that comes from the cosmos exposed through these plates to create a second set of images, which is then mounted on paper and placed on light boxes. This is a fascinating project that's historically... Oh, we'll come to the insects. (laughs) (laughs) Then on top of this, he's collected uh, insects because they're attracted to light, the notion of attraction to light. So he's collected insects and placed those on other photographic plates and then laid the two. So what we finish up with is a micro-macro experience, the cosmos on its microscopic almost scale as insects. We are insects in the universe, tiny little specks, and this, this vastness of sublime images. Harry, I love Dan, your work. your description of my work is better than I could do myself. Um, I don't know if I can do justice to your work in the same to the same degree you've done justice to mine. Um, well, Dan's piece is one of a uh, in the show, and and Dan is anyway. I think he's trained in physics um, and uh, is a photographer as well. And his work, in many ways, uh, however, is is in many ways more sculptural um, than it is strictly photographic, although it includes photographic. It's part of a large series of works that he's producing that are three-dimensional objects uh, that include photographic references of various kinds. In this particular case, he has a piece, and I can't remember the title of it. Um, Aqua Optica. Aqua Optica. Planet X. Planet X, okay. (laughs) And um, if you go into the gallery, you see this beautifully carved um, tripod of wood, and on top of that tripod of wood is a fishbowl with water, um, and uh, which has a, a transparent lid on it. Um, and behind the fishbowl is another sheet of glass, and, and projected onto that piece of glass is a video, um, a sequence, um, in which um, you see images of the planets, and most particularly you see images referencing in some way Pluto and the history of Pluto. And what... Um, Dan has done, has delved into the history of, and this is one of Dan's passions, the history of astronomy, uh, particularly as it relates to the physics um, and optical experience and envisioning of the the heavens. Um, And he's drawn various threads from the history of the discovery of Pluto, which goes back to the 1932, is that right? 1930. 1930. And Lowell and the Lowell Observatory, and Dan spent time in Lowell Observatory in Arizona, to uh, develop the material and acquire the material for this this project, um, it's a beautifully almost hypnotic uh, work. In when you look at through the fishbowl at the distorted imagery coming through the back of it from the projections of of this little movie he's got um, of Saturn and other planets, but always coming back to the story of Pluto. Uh, you have a sense, I suppose, of the distortion of light. The the sense that that what we see in the night sky is only 
a glimpse of what's actually there and a distorted glimpse at that. I think you've you. both done great justice to one another's work. And it's one of the things that I, I, when I get a group of artists in together, I love to have, to hear people talking about one another's work as much as their own. So I think what, what you've both told us is quite revealing about the works themselves, but also about your responses to them. Um, to, to come back to you for a moment, Felicity, tell us kind of uh, in terms of the, the, the artistic brief you've given everybody for this show, has everybody kind of risen to the occasion and surpassed your hopes? Um, look, I think the Coonahan Gallery is a wonderful space in which to show these works and uh, an exhibition which is similar to this one has been shown previously and there are some new works and some works that have been shown previously and they've come together in a in very well in this particular space. Um, my work, Deep Field, which is very large seven-panel work, um, is in the first gallery, and it is exactly the right size to be immersed in this particular work, which is like a huge wall, mural-sized piece. And um, then Harry's light boxes down the centre of the gallery, and then Taria Triggs, solographs, and Leslie Duxbury's wonderful, subtle photographs, which... Um, uh, reveal the constellations as if it was in the daytime and they sort of speak to each other and then you come down to this womb of the gallery at the end where Magda Chabocli's wonderful paintings which are um, kind of variations on the idea of um, of, the, of the ring and um, and then with that you have juxtaposed her, um, Dan's wonderful aqua opti optica work <coughs> and um, I think it, it, it's a great experience. And also I have a, a sound work, which um, I made with a sound technician some years ago, which um, using samples of uh, star sounds, which had been um, interpreted by um, an astronomer, radio astronomer, Paul Francis, and um, put together as a 15-minute loop, not as a musical thing, but more as, as if you were in a radio astronomy observatory and you were focusing on a particular part of the sky and these things were just, you know, appearing and and the signals, the data was coming back and being interpreted through um, computerisation into sound, although some of them are sounds anyway. But, yeah, so that's... that's. I, I, I'd like to say something about the relationship between science and art. That was actually going to be my next question, and it's a question for all three of you. Um, uh, and it... Uh, because... In the past, I've sometimes had a sense that people think art is one field, science is another, and never the twain shall meet. And just as over the, the past 20 years or so, we've seen a, uh, a blurring of discrete art form boundaries and so much more cross-collaboration uh, and exploration within different art forms, it seems too that we've, we're seeing a, a much deeper engagement and collaboration between mm -hmm. art and science. Would the three of you agree? Mm. Yeah, well... Uh I think that, you know, both art and science give us a different dimension of the real. However, we we both work with speculation. Art is a more subjective thing. Um, and uh, I think perhaps it, it taps into the senses a little more. It works with aesthetics and ideas. And we have to remember that a lot of the works in this exhibition just actually wouldn't be able to be made if it wasn't for scientific knowledge and tech, new technologies and old technologies that have, um, you know, occurred through history and we've digested and, you know, um, tapped into those. So 
Um, I think they're complementary, and I think what art does is it looks outside of itself to make comments about the world um, in in the sense of um, making an art object or some kind of statement in in the area of art, but it doesn't preclude art from looking outside itself to make these comments, uh, you know. So what about you two? Well, you know, it's interesting because in my project, Syzygy, um, um, both refers to science, um, the science of the knowledge of the stars, and, of course, it uses scientific material in the form of astronomical glass plates uh, produced by two um, um, telescopes. Um, and, by the way, the plates that I use, um, another set of them now in Edinburgh, is the um, basis for Google Sky, um, uh, digitised version of these original glass plates that were done analogue many years ago. Um <laughs> But I think the, one of the important things here is to... I mean, I know I've met artists who claim that they they uh, they collaborate deeply with science and often what they're really saying is that they are inspired by science and they are referring to science. Because I don't think it's... I think it's um, it's presumptuous of, of a scientist to pretend to be an artist or an artist to be a, be a scientist, mm, unless, you're, unless you have skills in the other area, true skills, research skills, for example, in science, if you're an artist. Um, so... Um, I don't pretend in any sense to be doing science, and uh, but what I am doing is, in a sense, um, and I think this applies to all the artists in the, in the show, um, we are engaging with science. We're not doing science. We're engaging with it. We're responding to it. And in my case, I can say poetically reacting to it. And I'd add to that and say that we live in a time where the imagery of science, the knowledge, the explanation of science is more accessible now than it's ever been mm. and it's a bigger part of our lives. Technology gives us access to these things. So it's an opportunity for both art and science to learn something from each other but also recognise their different directions. And I see it's like a Venn diagram with this really interesting areas of crossover and then there's areas where they don't cross over and that's fine. They're kind of respected distances that we talked about before mm. but there's always even historically been a connection going back to the Renaissance and the emergence, the separation of natural philosophy and art. So yeah, it's an exciting time mm. to be inspired and connected. And indeed. I think that um, what both artists and scientists do is leave the remnants of their time for a future time. And um, they're both speculative, really. Um, the science often has to prove itself. Artists don't have to necessarily prove themselves. Um, but I think that's what, what we do. And without that, imagine, you know, wouldn't be such an interesting world. Mm. So. Skylab, Lines of Sight and Forces of Attraction is showing until the 30th of August at the Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick, located at 233 Sydney Road. Uh, more info at au. Thanks to the three of you for joining us in the studio today. I think we could talk about this subject for three hours <laughs> rather than just 15 minutes, but uh, it's been a pleasure having you in. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Three, triple, ah. Now, joining me on the line, we have my next guest for the morning, the director of the Anywhere Festival, which, true to its name, uh, started in Brisbane and seems to be spreading everywhere and anywhere across the country. Uh, Anywhere Festival Frankston is now in its second year. Paul Osuch, good morning to you. 
Good morning, Richard, and thank you very much for having me on the show today. My very great pleasure. Now, when uh, Sir Ian McKellen was touring Brisbane in 2000, well, touring Australia in 2010, he couldn't find a theatre to stage a show in, which gave you the idea of a festival which presents new works anywhere but in traditional theatres. Last year, it expanded to Frankston for the first time. It's back again this year. Why is this idea of performing outside of traditional performance space, why has it resonated so strongly with artists and audiences alike? Wow, yeah, look, it's been, um, I think it's worked really on a couple of really different ways. From the point of view of performers, uh, what they've really loved about it is when they get to develop new shows or reimagine their current shows, in very different spaces. Uh, and because of the way we work, they're all spaces that are, that are rent-free. So for a lot of independent artists that present work at, you know, at fringe festivals or, or anywhere else where you know, there's a lot of you know, venue costs involved, all of a sudden this allows them to see works in a, and present works in a different way. Um, and you know, instead of having to spend you know, a lot of time converting a normal you know, stage into whatever set they want, uh, they're actually grabbing, whether it's a boxing ring or a cafe or an alley, um, and using it as, a, as it is. Um, and and that's also the interesting thing for, uh, or one of the interesting things for audiences, that instead of you know, going to a space that possibly they, they know that maybe might be seen as being a bit sterile and, you know, with a theatre... All of a sudden, they're going. Oh, yeah, I've always wanted to go to the library after after it's shut, or um, you know, I've never been to a uh, you know, to a, to a gym before. That'd be something like me. Um, so, um, and 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 the festival gives people the opportunity to explore those those spaces uh, as well as seeing a really interesting act at the same time. And I think that's why it's resonated. One of the things that intrigues me uh, uh, about the the notion of anywhere as a festival is the the fact that in some ways the name of the festival is a challenge to artists to see just where they can put work. So whether that be uh, touring in a shopping centre, performing inside a car, inside a car park, um, secret locations, heritage locations, um, there's a real sense that artists are... You're inspiring artists to, to to not just think outside the square, but to think outside triangles and any other possible shape they can imagine as well. Oh, look, absolutely. Look, it's this thing of saying, like, I've, it really comes back, you know, for me, this, this idea of going, look, I, I think it's silly that we just, you know, have cordoned off this idea that, you know, for to see culture, it has to happen in, in a you know, in a theatre or, or you have to see artworks in a gallery. Um, you know, it's, what's most fascinating is when we, you know, bring you know, art and culture and storytelling and we, and we make it part of our everyday lives in the environments that, that we spend, you know, time in. Um, and it allows us to just explore and look at things, you know, very differently once, you know, once we've done that. So that, that's what's, um, you know, the feedback we always get from, you know, from audiences. They go, gosh, I can never, you know, I'll never be able to see that train station the same way again because, you know, they saw this, this performance that happened in front of it. Um, and it just starts to build this whole level of storytelling um, and community outside of, of theatres. And I think that's what's so fascinating about it all. Now, for Melbourne audiences, uh, there 
I guess the way they think about Frankston uh, may not always be complementary. So this is also an opportunity to not just reimagine where art is presented, but to reimagine Frankston as a suburb as well. Yeah, look, we've, as I said, we're, this is the second time we're doing the festival, and this year we really wanted to set it up so that uh, particularly people outside of Frankston were able to come to Frankston, see some of the you know, attractions that also were things that were happening regardless of whether it was a festival or not, um, as well as giving them a way to explore you know, different areas um, and and have you know a reason or you know a destination and and a journey, so that's why you know we've got you know free events that are happening. For example, in you know the Well Street Mall, and mentioned there's a walking you know comedy walking tour with fashionistas, dashing debris, um, through to things you know McClellan Sculpture Park, um, which is you know a fantastic you know location there, um, and um, you know as well as a bunch of, you know, car parks and things like that as well. Uh, you know, projections up on the screen of um, the wall of, you know, Cube 37, which is something that's been done by, you know, the Australian Dance Theatre Company. Um, so, yeah, it, we've really tried to structure so people go, oh, I've got really, you know, wanted a reason or wanted to explore a bit. Uh, we've set up the program so people can go and see some, you know, free things during the day and, you know, also, you know, see, you know, uh, you know ticketed performances at night and, and and get to explore what you know Frankston next thing you know, does have to offer because there's a lot out there and it's a fascinating place. Anywhere Festival uh, is running from the 21st of August to the 6th of September in and around the nooks and crannies of Frankston. You can find out more information about the program and what's on offer at www.anywherefest.com and. Uh, Alternatively, if you're streaming us from another city, then you never know, Anywhere Fest may pop up near you as well. Because, Paul, you're also doing Mackay in Queensland, Parramatta in Western Sydney, and, of course, the original home of Anywhere Brisbane. Yes, yes. So, so after this one, we'll be off to um, you know, working on Brisbane for, for May. So, yes, it's, it's always getting you know, you know, bigger, and, bigger and better. So, yeah, absolutely. We're really excited about it. But, um, and it's lovely to see, you know, Frankston you know, growing the way it is as well. Anywhere Festival Frankston, as I said, from the 21st of August to the 6th of September. More info at www.anywherefest.com. Paul Osuch, thanks very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you very much, Richard. Have a lovely day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Three Triple R. Richard Watts is my name. Smart Arts is the program you're listening to. My next guests have joined me in the studio. They are ensemble members from Platform Youth Theatre. Uh, Danae Crawford and Dominic Weintra, welcome to you both. Hi, thanks Hi. for having us. So, um, tell us a little bit about Platform Youth Theatre before we get into specifically talking about um, the residency at La Mama that you're about, that the company's doing. For people who don't know uh, about Platform, Tell us a bit about it. So Platform is a youth theatre company that uh, kind of practices um, like involving youth people into theatre. So they're all about like involvement and team building and stuff like that. And based out in the city of Darabin and in, in the, the northern suburbs of Melbourne? or They were originally based there. See, I'm, I'm old, so I know that it used to <laughs> be there. Oh, right, but... okay. <laughs> yeah, so um, originally they were based there, and now we've moved to right next to Malthouse um, in 
the CBD. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, does that then mean that, as well as m- having moved there, you're going to the company is now working with young people from all across Melbourne? Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, I know that in this season alone, there are people from sort of all over Victoria, yeah. and people which having a long way to get to all the rehearsals and stuff. So, yeah. it's really been great to meet like such a wide variety of people. Um, yeah. From everywhere. Certainly means that it's not just the kids that go to your school, for example, but so kids, are, people are coming in from the country. Yeah, pretty much. There are a lot of people from Traugan, there's one from Sale, there's like tons from like all over the place. That's fantastic. It's really yeah. interesting. So the season that you're doing at La Mama Theatre, and whenever I talk about La Mama, I have to do a quick disclaimer. I'm on the committee of management at La Mama Theatre. I do not benefit financially <laughs> from my involvement with the company. Therefore, it's not really that much of a conflict of interest to talk about shows that are on at La Mama. <laughs> so anyway, but the, the platform uh, at La Mama collaboration is a collaboration between La Mama Theatre and uh, Platform Youth Theatre. And this has been going on for uh, quite a few years now. Yeah, um, I think this is our fourth or fifth year. And how many works are being staged this year? Um, so there's, there's 24 13-minute shows. That's um, a lot of, a lot of shows. Night. I yeah. actually think there might be 25, oh. with, like, with Adam's piece being split into two. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's now 25 shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's and a lot to keep track of. Yeah, and are you guys, have you written them as well as performing in them? Or? Yeah, so basically what's happened is at the very start of the process we had like a, a pitch day where we all sort of talked about the ideas that we wanted to explore throughout the process, and then after that we kind of... <laughs> then had to independently sort of source a writer, a director, a dramaturg, a performer, a set designer, a lighting designer, a costume designer. And so it's kind of been a way of involving everyone in everyone's pieces. So at the end of this process, you can kind of take a step back and say you've had an involvement in at least like between five and ten of the pieces in the show. And, and wearing a different hat in each kind of exactly show as right. well. Yeah. Yes. That's fantastic. Mm, so it's giving like this really like holistic experience of what theatre is. Um, which has been really nice. So, to, to give us an example, Donna, what, what, what did you pitch, for example? Uh, what was the idea? And then what other roles are you playing in other people's shows? Okay, so um, I pitched the idea that... Um, so, mine was just kind of a broad one. So, I said that uh, you can never really know someone and no one can ever really know you. And then I kind of just, like shifted that off to someone else and they wrote that piece and then they got another performer and uh, so on, so on, so on. But And then I wrote for Cassandra's idea, which um, is called Pandora's Flatpack, um, which is about a victim who um, has kind of built up this front and she um, lies compulsively. Um, and then I dramaturged a piece about eating disorders called Trigger Warning, which was a lot of fun, but <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a heavy topic. Yeah. Um, and then I'm performing in a piece about memories underneath the staircase of La Mama. Which is really terrific. Which is <laughs> Such a great piece. Oh, so you. are each of them solo shows, as in kind of one person performing in each show, or are there a number uh, of... No, there are some pieces where there's more than one. I know, I think the most we have in any show is four. Is four. Okay. Um, You're in a show that has four. Yeah, which is... It's, it's, it's hard being in a show with four people, because throughout the, re- the rehearsal process, you kind of... Everyone's rehearsing for at least five pieces a week, and then trying to get five people in a room at one time is just a nightmare. But yeah, with, with everyone's conflicting schedules, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and, and, look, if I was you, I'd, I'd just be terrified that I'd start speaking the wrong lines of dialogue <laughs> in the wrong play. But, yeah. Um, so, Dominic, tell us about the idea you pitched and some of the other pieces that you're involved um, with as well. So, the, the piece I pitched was... I, I kind of wanted to explore... 
um, the idea of the tortured artist and how it's kind of being idealized within the like within the art industry. Um, and so I kind of just like it was like a very uh, vague idea when I first had it, and I kind of found a few people who were really interested in it, and they kind of took it in an interesting direction, which I've really enjoyed watching. Um, and so I've written for a piece about um, a homosexual couple who who one of whom experienced memory loss and completely forgot who the other one was. And then it's like, it's set like six months after that on their first date where one of them remembers their entire like five, four year relationship. And one of them has no recollection of it, um, which has been a lot of fun. Um, it took several drafts to get it done, but it's, it's been good. And then a dramaturg, the piece that Danae is performing in, or one of the pieces that Danae performs in about, um, about memories and why we remember what we remember. Um, so yeah, it's it, been. It sounds like a like a great way for for everybody to get hands on practical experience in so many different roles simultaneously. It's amazing. <laughs> like it, it's been an amazing process to be involved in. And mm. uh, in terms of uh, the, have, have you? I know you, you mentioned that Adam Cass is involved, um, who's, and Adam is a prolific and very experienced Melbourne playwright yeah. uh, whose work has been toured kind of internationally and nationally. <clears throat> so has, has he been playing a kind of mentorship role in terms of the playwriting approach? Or? Yeah, pretty much. He kind of, each, each week we had a workshop. Every Saturday we had like an all-day workshop where he would kind of teach us a, a new skill, whether it was directing or writing or designing. Um, and it's really really been incredible. I, I assumed that he would be great for like the writing workshop, maybe for the acting and directing workshops, but he has like such a, um, a broad knowledge of everything to do with theatre. Um, and he's just been able to impart so much knowledge. He's on definitely us. been a mentor throughout this entire process. Like if we ever had like a problem or uh, <laughs> a worry or something, we'd go to him and be like, well, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? And he'd always help, like and, no matter where. And Georgia Simmons is involved as well? Yeah. She's also been a really great voice to have in the room a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, because there's just like so many things that go wrong as which happen, as happens with any piece of theatre. And so it's been good having both of them in the room at all times. Yeah. Kind of helping. So the platform at La Mama Collaboration is uh, on now, kicked off yesterday, and it's running through until the 23rd of August. There are 23 shows in one night. You get to see six of them, mm. so uh, uh, which means you could go back on different nights, see a different arrangement of shows, yeah. and get this real rich, broad experience. Not quite as rich and broad as the experience that you guys have had, <laughs> I suspect, but not quite. Yeah, um, it sounds like great fun. And do you then get to come back on other nights and see other people's work as well? Or? Not really, unfortunately. I really am upset that we haven't had a chance to sort of see every single piece in the process, but I'm sure that throughout the next few weeks, whenever we have spare time, I'll, I'll be walking around and asking everyone to show me their pieces. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. There are so many pieces that I'm like, I'm quite upset that I haven't been able to watch them yet. Uh, but fear of missing out, it's kind of like, you, yeah. Pretty much. With, with, a, with a, a, something as involved as this, then yeah, it, trying to see everything would probably kill you. Honestly, though, yeah, it yeah. really would. <laughs> um, so the platform at La Mama Collaboration, running through until the 23rd of August. Performances are Wednesdays to Sundays at 7.30pm and run for about 90 minutes. And it's all happening at the one and only La Mama Theatre, 205 Faraday Street in Carlton. Tickets are just 15 bucks or $10 concession, so it's really cheap to get along. You can book at lamama.com.au or you can pick up the phone and call 93476142. And just finally, if people want to get involved with Platform Youth Theatre, how do they do that? All you need to do is email rose at pyt.com. 
www.ethicsforthecommunity.org.au and just express your interest and I'm sure she'll be happy to help. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R and uh, I'll have to make sure I get along and see some of the shows. With luck, I'll catch yours. Yeah, thanks (laughs) for having us. Thanks for having us. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Earlier in the program, we were talking about the Israeli Film Festival. A little bit later on this morning, in about 20 minutes' time, Cerise Howard will be joining us to talk to us about what she's been seeing at the Melbourne International Film Festival. But right now we're going to talk about a different film festival, the 2015 Indian Film Festival of Melbourne, uh, which is now in its fourth year, is running from the 14th of August, uh, which is tomorrow, uh, through until the 27th of August. And joining us to tell us more, the festival's co-director, Bidjut Dumbra. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. I see I'm, I'm the meat and the sandwich between the other two festivals. It's. It, I think it's very indicative of Melbourne that there is such a diversity of film programming happening, not just uh, around this time of year, but throughout the year as well. I know, just uh, actually this morning, I, I'll, it's my, my disclaimer, I was doing a morning pickup, so I was picking up some guests. Uh, they arrived in at 5am in the morning, and as we were driving down, I was telling them about how cultural Melbourne is as a city. And you're, you're right, it's it's an absolute testament to, I guess, the support Melbourne has more from, I guess, all the ecosystem and also the patrons to the arts. It's brilliant. Now, tell us a little bit about, before we get into some of the highlights and the details of the film festival itself, uh, tell us about the, the strength of, um, I guess, film culture in India. I know, certainly off the top of my head, that um, uh, there is a huge and thriving uh, population of filmmakers. I, I believe India's film output dwarfs that of Hollywood each year. Yes, uh, the the numbers sort of state that uh, in in Hollywood you've got about I think close to about four hundred features that come out, and uh, in Bollywood we go up to around thousand three hundred. So we were sort of times three. So certainly we got them beat from a quantity perspective for for sure. And given a lot of the Hollywood films I've seen, I suspect sometimes a quality perspective as well. From our perspective, definitely. <laughs> and uh, we, we've been distributing over here for a while. And every time we, we tend to knock one of the bigger boys off uh, into a bigger screen, we, we have a little party ourselves. I'm not surprised. Now, in terms of programming uh, the festival, talk to us about the the, the approach. Uh, is the aim to give uh, an impression of all the different styles of films being made? To, or just to highlight some of the, the hits? What, how do you approach the programming? So uh, actually in regards to the way we've done the programming, it, and as you mentioned, it's our fourth year, we've actually sort of rejigged the programming every year. So from this year, uh, I'll just give you a quick, we've got uh, Hooray Bollywood, which is our mainstream Bollywood film. So this is the, the regular fare that everyone loves all over the world. Then we've got Beyond Bollywood, which is films from India, but languages that are not Hindi. So this is like uh, if you got Bengali, Marathi, Tamil. So some of the the non-Hindi uh, content. Then we've got from the subcontinent, and these are films that come out of uh, our neighbouring countries like uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Bhutan. Then we've got Film India World, which is Indian filmmakers, but who are not living in India. So we've got some uh, fare that's come in from Germany, US, Canada, and of course Australia as well. And the last is we've got a section because for this year, the theme of the festival is equality. And we're going on equality across gender, religion, disability and sexuality. 
and we've got a special section which is called girl power and that's where we've got uh, content which is predominantly where you've got the central figure is a female and and that's the dominant character in the movie now the notion of programming to a theme can be a challenging one because once you establish a theme that yes that's great it means you can you can pick particular kinds of films but it also does it also then run the risk that you're locking out films that don't fit the theme for sure so in in this case what we did is the girl power was the was predominantly the most closely i guess affiliate affiliated to the theme uh with the other sections we did play a bit in regards to different content that uh either matched very closely or was fair that we knew that the Australians would like and was released uh within the uh calendar that we'd want to show showcase so we we did sort of uh we didn't sort of restrict ourselves but we did sort of have that theme as a guiding principle now talk to us about the the festival's audience because i imagine to a degree when it was established the audience would have been primarily kind of indian australians uh and and perhaps uh, other people from the subcontinent living in melbourne have you seen a shift in the demographic of the audience are, are more kind of uh people who who just love cinema regardless of where it's from attending the festival from our side uh that's definitely and and uh, i don't know if this is a politically incorrect or correct term to use but we we sort of try and monitor the what we call the white audience yep. and uh, the number's been growing and for us that is brilliant from from our perspective we know that the the indians and and as you said it's uh, it's more like a religion in india so we know the indians will come to watch the indian films but when we see it being appreciated by non indians that's when we know the festival is actually truly working so what we've also done is we've also added free sessions that we do in federation square and also at the the windham city council this time and that attracts a lot of people who might be curious but not at that point where they're committing to buy a ticket it gives them a bit of a flavor and then we try and hook them in so yeah. we follow that principle we give them the first one free and then get them hooked for life <laughs> film dealing yes. essentially yes now obviously any uh, film festival worth its salt not only presents a diverse array of films exploring different topics and ideas and 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 filmmaking styles but also brings in special guests and uh, you've got quite a few this year actually this year we've uh I I think we went totally overboard. We've got about I think close to 53 people that are coming in from overseas. So a bit of a logistical nightmare. Uh but I'm sure the people uh the the film lovers will us totally going to love it. We've got uh stars like Anil Kapoor who's uh who's of course not only acted in a in a lot of Indian block blockbusters but he's also branched across and done Slumdog Millionaire. Uh he's uh, acted in in episodes of 24 and also in Mission Impossible. so he's uh, he's definitely broken out uh, of the the indian uh, bollywood and jumped into very really mainstream hollywood we've also got uh, imran khan kangana ranaut we've got sonam kapoor uh we've got fawad khan we've got an array of stars so for anyone who is uh who is remotely looking at being starstruck come along they've got plenty of opportunities yes. to do that now i'm not going to ask you to choose your favorite film or favorite films because that's never fair to a, sure. to to a film programmer but for people who might be curious about um uh Indian films and have, have not seen them or perhaps they they've seen a bit of bollywood uh uh and want to know more and want to engage with the festival program more deeply what are a couple of films you'd recommend as as a way of introducing people to some of the 
the deeper themes and ideas being explored in contemporary Indian cinema. Sure. Uh, I, I guess, and, and that's why we did the programming in a way where we had the mainstream as long as the non-mainstream. So I'll start with the mainstream. If you're looking at real Bollywood, Bollywood, with everything, you, let's say it fits completely into the stereotype. Uh, we've got a film called Happy New Year, which has got our, our demigod Shah Rukh Khan acting in it with Deepika Padkane. So that's that's definitely one to put on the list. PK is another film that has done really, really well in the box office here. So that that was definitely a, a film that people really enjoyed. Uh, if I jump into, let's say, the non-mainstream, uh, Umrika, which is the opening film, is one. It's it's a very interesting story of a of an older brother that goes to America, uh, which is Umrika is um, the slang of America, and uh, he writes back letters, and everyone in the village enjoys his stories, and suddenly the letter the letters stop, and then. So the mystery is around what happened and the younger brother goes to find the older brother. So that's a very interesting one. Uh, the other is uh, we've got a film called Unfreedom where it's, uh, it's a lesbian lover and her partner is being forced into an arranged marriage and she kidnaps the girl. And it's dissected with another story about a liberal scholar who is kidnapped uh, because of his views, his criticisms on on the uh, the Islam religion, so we've got those two stories intertwined. So those are some of the stories which I'd say as not mainstream India, but will give you a sense of where uh, filmmaking is going in India. The Indian Film Festival of Melbourne is running from the 14th until the 27th of August at Hoyts Melbourne Central and Hoyts High Point, uh, and then with special events elsewhere, such as Federation Square and the National Gallery of Victoria as well. So uh, it's a broad and diverse program which will delight fans of Bollywood, but also fans of all manner of cinema, drama, documentaries, short films, and more. Uh, you can find out all the details details at uh, iffm.com.au so www.iffm.com.au for the all, all the information you need about the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne or you can pick up a copy of the program from around town which will not only give you the blurbs on all the films and the different festival guests and programming streams but has also very handily got a schedule in the back so you can start mapping out your life for uh, the week or so that the festival is on. Pidyot Dumbra, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R and uh, I hope the festival is a fantastic success. Thank you Richard, I hope you come along. Three triple R. Been a while since we've played the entire fistful of celluloid theme, Cerise Howard. Uh, that it has. It's always actually rather a pleasure to hear it through, not least because it gives me a chance to catch my breath properly, especially on such a day as this where I have rushed to get here. And then you'll be rushing off to see more films at MIF. That I will. That I will. Now, one of the films you've seen is the new Australian film directed and written by Grant Schlakuna. It's his first uh, feature film following a number of intriguing shorts over the years. Uh, And uh, it's a bit of a MIF success story because its first three sessions sold out and they added a fourth, which is now, I believe, also sold out or is very close to it. Excellent. And one would hope that would mean uh, a release would have to be a good prospect for Downriver being the film we're talking about. My, I believe Rialto have picked it up as a potential, well, are picking it up and it's going to be getting a cinematic release next year. Oh, very good. Uh, so I, I don't quote me on that, but that's what I've heard. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, it's look, it's a, a dark, intriguing tale of skeletons in closets, uh, coming out of closets, and uh, a strangely, well, actually, I, mean, I had identified the location long before I saw the credits roll at the end, uh, Warrandyte, very familiar environment. You couldn't mistake that river for anything but the Yarra, could you, really? Not at all. It's um, it's and it's one of the things that intrigues me about the film is its use of the of the landscape, uh, the river itself and the land around it, which includes a caravan park and and bridges and more. Um, for me, this film fits really neatly into the the, the Australian Gothic. Yeah. Um, it's that haunted landscape and what lies beneath, which in this film quite almost literally bubbles to the surface. Yeah, and that. It's a classic small community. Something is rotten at the core of it. You don't know quite how deep it goes because everybody seems to have secrets. Everyone's identity is shifting in this film, especially that comes to the forefront in terms of sexuality, where at first it seems like some sort of strange uh, gay male utopia where the, the teens are free to frolic as, as they wish, but there's, you know, there's dark undercurrents which do indeed come to the surface rather rapidly. Um, and it all concerns uh, the death of a young child some years prior to most of the action in the film and just uh, everyone coming to terms with the events uh, of a fateful day and how they have since been spun and, and the impact upon uh, a variety of people. And one of the main people it impacts upon is the, uh, the, our, our central character, our uh, protagonist, um, played by Reef Island, who's just been released from jail, um, having served time for the murder of, of a child, whose body was never recovered. Yeah. And so the, the film focuses on um, his quest to not only find the missing body, but to find the truth of what happened on that day. He suffered an epileptic seizure, so his memories of the day himself uh, are murky, even murkier than perhaps the Yarra itself. Yes, and there are a lot of unreliable witnesses who seem to have borne testimony way back when and to this day too. So it's an intriguing uh, investigation he embarks upon. Uh, he's not always the most sympathetic of characters either. Uh, he's, it's a terrific performance. There are times where... Uh, really sense that he's just going to burst there are one or two times i wish actually the violence which it proves inevitable in this film was a little more um uh, a little better choreographed because i didn't actually believe in some of it but some of it i believed in all too well and found actually quite uh, disturbing uh, as was clearly the intention but uh, it is a, a striking film the cinematography is uh, I hesitate to use the word lovely because the, the uh, narrative matter of the film is rather dark, but uh, the Yarra, for all its murk and muddiness, is actually looks rather gorgeous. It's, look, the film is beautifully shot. It really is. It's uh, uh, gorgeous cinematography, whether that be uh, dark and gloomy scenes or whether it be the sparkle of light on water uh, and the hint of what lies beneath the river. Um, the the, the cinematography is great. I really like the sound design as well. It, it pulled away from, uh, the sound design and... And the competition it could have been kind of so over the top and ominous and it's not it's uh there's there's moments of uncomfortable silence and there's a lot in the film i was genuinely discomforted by the film yeah. in places I, and which for me is a is as a sign of uh of a, of success because i i like horror films i like thrillers but i i rarely actually am uh, moved by them in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable and anxious about what is unfolding on screen and in the, the, the last half of Downriver. Um, that was definitely the case for me. I did conversely st 
struggle somewhat to become engaged in the first half of the film. I think it's perhaps a little underwritten in that regard, which is a shame because I really wanted to love this film. As it is, I like it and admire it, but I, I do have a, a bit of a struggle with the first half. Yeah, there's some awkwardness in the dialogue, and some of that rings true in terms of fairly inarticulate teenagers uh, struggling to say or to express complex emotions. But, uh, yeah, there is a, a certain awkwardness, but I, I think this film is it's a pretty strong feature debut, and I think it's going to remain strong at least until some of the cast become stars. I, I sense that there are a couple of stars in the making amongst the younger cast here. Um, much as I think Snowtown, which absolutely destroyed me a year or two back, won't have quite that same impact in a few years' time when, uh, especially the likes of Daniel Henshaw and others become much more familiar faces. And much like The Boys all those years ago was extremely impactful upon release, but now you look back at it and see, oh, it's David Wenham, it's Tony Collette. And so in this instance, we have Tom Green, who plays the uh, uh, the estranged best friend, Anthony, um, and uh, the less said of Anthony and his family, perhaps the better. Um, uh, and uh, Charles Grounds is uh, Damien, who uh, uh, develop the local teenager who develops an attraction towards James, our hero. Or yeah. our, well, hero is the wrong word. This is but, the wrong word. <laughs> yes, but uh, protagonist. Yeah. So yeah, this this kind of uh, trio of young men and the essentially kind of the 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 attraction and tension that that builds between them is a central part of the film. Kerry Fox is uh, fantastic in the film as well, uh, playing um, James's mum. Um, great conflicted performance and even she's a, a great character off screen as well I have to say having now done a Q&A with her um, uh, uh, and other members of the cast and crew at the film's Australian premiere and then seeing her in fine form a couple of nights later at the Melbourne premiere of Holding the Man I'm not sure whether she acts more on screen or off but she's uh, certainly larger than life. Actually you're used to the term off screen there it just reminds me as well that one of the most striking things about this film is what happens off screen. Dialogue uh, overlaps from one scene into another often these things that happen simultaneously or, or or actually sometimes not too but one scene is often playing on screen while another is still being heard on the soundtrack even after it's cut away from it and i actually found that quite effective and occasionally the juxtapositions that created quite disturbing so it's a it's a very thoughtfully made film and i think it augurs very well for the director to carry on. So this is uh, Down River, the debut Australian feature from uh, Melbourne filmmaker Grant Schlukuna and you can uh, find some of his short films available um, on DVD and I highly recommend The Wilding, for example, which in some ways is a, a precursor to this film, uh, starring also um, uh, the, the same lead actor, um, Reef Island, but uh, is it I think I did. I hope I didn't just get his name wrong. No, it's Reef. I've forgotten his surname. Anyway. Yeah. Well, another film I'd very much like to talk about. It's very fresh in my mind because I saw it just last night. It's from a, well, a director who's been around a very long time and yet whose marquee value seems clearly to have fallen. Um, why wasn't the Forum Theatre filled for the new film by Peter Greenaway? Well, it seems like his heyday must have been in the 80s and 90s, at least in terms of pulling a crowd. When he was producing such uh, visually overwhelming and uh, narratively dense films as The Belly of an Architect, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, just at the very end of the 80s, and The Pillow Book in the 90s, which is the film that, in a way, his 
new film reminds me of the most just because it is so erotically charged and there's a lot of male flesh on screen and it's an altogether very queer account of some key episodes in the life of the one of the most celebrated of all filmmakers, the Russian uh, pioneer of the montage of attractions, Sergei Eisenstein, and the film Eisenstein in Guanajuato. And it concerns his trip there as a 33-year-old virgin who was courted by Hollywood and fated there but nonetheless couldn't ultimately get work and has instead headed to Mexico to see if he can't find some footage to weave a feature around. And uh, what mostly consumes him there, aside from actually shooting a, a tremendous amount of footage or at least farming that job out to some of his colleagues, is uh, a, a grand love affair he embarks upon with a fellow named of Luis, uh, a name of Palomino Canedo, played by Luis Alberti. And Alberti and the chap playing Eisenstein, uh, Elmer Beck, a Finnish actor, are incredibly charismatic on screen. These performances elevate what is already a very vivacious film into something really quite grandiose, which we sort of do expect from Greenaway. He was never one to underplay things. But in these actors, he's found the, the perfect um, match for his overall aesthetic. His film is so exuberant. There are times where you might find it overly so and wish that he actually would stop the camera pirouetting in certain scenes. Uh, but it is such a giddying experience, this film, and also a wonderful history lesson in uh, the history of cinema. If people don't know that much about Eisenstein, they might at least know the name of probably still his most celebrated film, Battleship Potemkin, which gave us the famous Odessa Steps sequence, paid homage to in countless films and even, I think, episodes of The Simpsons and... Everywhere. Everywhere. People, uh, if you can't picture it, just at the least imagine a huge set of steps heading down towards the seaside and a baby in a pram becoming liberated, uh, troublingly so, from the mother uh, and bouncing down in intervals and this extraordinary montage that Eisenstein so celebrated for with cutting away from all of this scuffling breaking out as the Cossacks and uh, the Navy military folks all all in a, a mad frenzy uh, and and this baby in the pram bouncing back further down the steps at intervals. I was wondering how Greenway was going to approach uh, incorporating Eisenstein's own aesthetics into his film and of course he was never going to ignore Eisenstein's contribution to cinema and there is some very peculiar montage in this film. Perhaps he's overused the triptych and when I say perhaps I mean he absolutely has in this film but it's also, um, I found this such a joyous experience and uh, it, it pandered to my cinephilia in huge ways and filled in lots of gaps I didn't know about in terms of Eisenstein's meetings with other luminaries in the avant-garde arts in Europe and, and especially in Russia, but then also in Hollywood. And the way that Greenaway brings all of this to the surface is... is the character of Eisenstein tells us a lot of it, but a lot of it is visualised on screen as well. We get portraits of the various people, but also lots of cutaways to scenes from Eisenstein's own films, in particular Strike from 1925, Battleship Potemkin, also from 25, and uh, October, or The Ten Days That Shook the World, from 1928. So, look, I, uh, I know this film isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I, I actually really can't help but want to recommend it extremely highly. I want to see people, I want to see Greenway pack a cinema again because I think this film is really quite glorious and has to be seen on a big screen. The visuals are so sumptuous. So this is the Eisenstein handshakes? Eisenstein in Guanajuato. Okay, well, uh, it's listed as the uh, Eisenstein handshakes on the Internet Movie Database. Uh, really? Hmm. 
Um, I don't know what that means. It must be something else. Uh, No, I lie. It's a different Mm. film. Yes. He's making two Eisenstein films. Oh, ah, yes. Well, that's that's uh, an interesting thing. He he was seeking funding from the Russians um, to make a a follow-up to this. But the Russians have taken a very dim view, to say the least, of just how erotically charged or homoerotically charged this film is and have very hastily withdrawn any official support for uh, Greenway to uh, produce some sort of sequel. And I can see why this this really isn't going to be their bag given the uh, oppressive uh, legislation in current-day Russia towards uh, homosexual propaganda. Yes, in inverted commas. Okay, so Eisenstein in Guanjuto. Guanajuato, Guanajuato. Yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's screening again this weekend, which is why I especially wanted to wrap it on about it here. As is Downriver, though, perhaps all sold out. Uh, On standby Standby. now. Yeah. Um, I uh, saw another film at MIF, which I but I'd already seen. I saw Holding the Man again, um, and uh, on a second screening, I enjoyed it even more. Uh, I have interviewed the director and screenwriter, and I'll be putting that interview to air in a fortnight's time. So, if you would like to hear my conversation with Neil Armfield and with screenwriter Tommy Murphy, uh, that will be on Thursday, the twenty seventh, which is the day that the film it gets, gets a general release. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I hope it really, really cuts through at the box office and finds a great audience because it absolutely deserves to. A lot of tremendous queer cinema out there at the moment at this myth and a lot of it getting a release soon. It's it's rather um, gratifying, really. It is. Mm. It is indeed. Yeah, look, I'm about done. There's plenty of... <laughs> there's four days of myth left. There's uh, such a wealth of things people can see. Uh, I, I've spoken at some length about The Forbidden Room as recently as on Plato's Cave on Monday, just gone. I know a lot of people out there will be flocking to see Macbeth rather than wait a mere two months to see it again, but anyone else of a truly cinephilic persuasion would be mad not to see The Forbidden Room from Guy Madden. This, uh, clearly then, I'm mad. I'm going, to, mad. See, I'm going to see the Scottish film. This Sunday, uh, this Sunday on f- at 4pm... Yeah, it's a tremendously queer sensibility film. Uh, Madden's long been one of my favourites, and that's a, a truly deranged and wonderful and cinephilic piece of cinema. Um, uh, Pasolini, you're seeing, speaking of another yeah, great queer auteurs, a biopic from Abel Ferrara. Intriguing, but I guess the Catholicism is what unites the two of them there. I'm very intrigued to see Pasolini as uh, essayed by Willem Dafoe is worth the price of admission. I'm intrigued as well. Cerise, we'll catch you uh, in a fortnight's time to talk more film, but you'll be joining me next week for the special Radiothon edition of Smart Arts. That I will. Uh, a joy to be a part of every year. Look forward to that. We'll catch you then. It's almost time for me to vacate the studio and uh, hand things over to the funkmeister Chris Gill. But before I do, um, if you are a film buff, then I'm sure you're familiar with the name of Ingrid Bergman. Arriving in the United States after achieving success in Swedish cinema, Ingrid Bergman navigated the strong and varied career of complex emotional parts. Uh, Melbourne Cinematheque is presenting Unadorned Radiance, the many faces of Ingrid Bergman. Um, On Wednesday, the 26th of August, there'll be an opening night screening of Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, where Bergman stars as the American daughter of a convicted spy who is courted by an espionage agent to infiltrate a Nazi organisation in post-war South America. Following will be Gaslight, George Cukor's lush adaptation of a hit Patrick Hamilton play, an otherwise over-the-top tale of psychological cruelty, secret identities and murder. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.
Notorious, where Bergman stars as the American daughter of a convicted spy who is courted by an espionage agent to infiltrate a Nazi organisation in post-war South America. Following will be Gaslight, George Cukor's lush adaptation of a hit Patrick Hamilton play, an otherwise over-the-top tale of psychological cruelty, secret identities and murder. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.